on Sunday mornings around 5 a.m. Um, there was a kind of community like fun run or exercise every Sunday. It was like the whole town came out and was just working out like there were almost no motos or no um, minibuses driving around. There'd be people doing like martial arts, um, doing, you know, sit-ups and push-ups, um, rollerblading, cycling, doing all kinds of sports. And it would finish up around like seven or eight. And we would all go back and like have breakfast and stuff or go back to sleep. Welcome to Inside Out, the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have our final amazing guest of season one. Next week, I'll be finally sharing my story to wrap up our season. I'll be sharing all about my journey with startups and entrepreneurship, how I got started with my own business when I was 13, how I helped design a student-run cafe at my university, and then going on to co-found the first ever classroom design platform for teachers, and why I decided to quit my job to work on this podcast. I'm excited to share some of my story with you guys and what I've learned over the years, so stay tuned for that next week. In the meantime, today's guest is Vivian Waltz. She's a public health professional who was just last year working on the Ebola response for the CDC out in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. She was working as an evaluation fellow, which uh, we'll go into what that means. When COVID hit, Viv repatriated back to Canada last year, and she's now been working on the COVID response in the Ganawage Mohawk Territory, which is a First Nations reserve outside of Montreal. In this episode, we talk about Viv's experience growing up on a Swiss farm in rural Ontario, how a documentary series about First Nations reconciliation in Canada really set off her whole career and what it was like working at the CDC and on the Ebola crisis. Be sure to let me know what you think about this episode in the comments below or on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. And with that, enjoy the show. So let's start from the beginning. I'd love to start with your childhood and upbringing and, uh, you know, what it was like growing up in a pretty Swiss family in Eastern Ontario. Yeah. So um, I immigrated with my parents when I was a baby, um, and it's kind of like a unique story um, because my grandparents and my mom's like siblings were already in Canada, and my parents decided to join them like about ten years after they had immigrated. They, my mom's uh, family, like wanted to start farming in eastern Ontario, and they were farmers in Switzerland. Um, but my grandparents' dream was to um, have a farm. A bigger farm in Canada. So I grew up in Canada, but with like all my Swiss family around. Um, and in rural Ontario, I grew up speaking Swiss German with my parents and like my grandmother, especially who also moved to um, after she retired, also moved from Switzerland. So I had like two sets of grandparents with us. And I think like the Swiss values came up a bit later, like, like order and like work. Um, could also be like farmer values more broadly. Um, and then just like, yeah, little like traditions, um, holidays, uh, like food, a lot of, we definitely eat a lot of cheese, <laughs> like relatively speaking. Yes, so good. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was having dinner at six o'clock and 
like spending a lot of time with my grandparents. What kind yeah. of farm did your grandparents have? Um, so they had dairy cows and um, crops. And at one point, somebody was also farming pigs. Did your family ever make your own cheese? Um, not that I can remember, but I remember okay. drinking like whole milk at mm. my my grandparents for breakfast that they had like gotten from the farm and we had to skim it um using a strainer because <laughs> like oh. all the, the fat was on top yeah how does that work is it literally like a strainer and you pour it through or um we use kind of like a, a strainer you'd use for tea um I'm gonna fast forward a little bit to your your slash our McGill experience when you think of your McGill days like what's most prominent and stands out to you what I remember like from day one is how much emphasis there was on critical thinking and kind of like at the end of my time at McGill, I came back to that. And especially like in my master's, cause I did my bachelor's in arts and science, um, cognitive science at McGill. And then I did a master's in master's of science in public health. There are certain key courses that just really like opened my mind and made me question a lot. I, I think I learned like so much from my peers who just, came from like different walks of life and growing up like in a small like mostly white town I knew there were other ways of living and like people could have different values and like I appreciated that um to some extent I was reflecting on how much more like I can appreciate that and navigate diverse contexts I remember attending a conference in my second year it was something like the interdisciplinary conference on education and then there was one lecture offered by the somebody from the First People's House um, at McGill. He showed us the documentary series uh, by CBC called Eighth Fire. And that was like just such a good um, introduction to the impacts of colonization on um, Indigenous peoples in Canada, how it touches like many parts of, of their lives and how those impacts like persist. And it gave me... Um, motivated me to see how I could get involved like um in a in a helpful way and like not repeat those patterns or like support those systems it led me to want to want to learn more most of all and like apply it in my studies because it was uh, such a like a broad picture it touched on education but like language and I was studying linguistics and languages and touched on health um the environment like so many things so I really remember that and like think back to that a lot. Like, I'm just so glad that I went to that conference kind of randomly, like started me on like this path. I'm a very visual learner. So I'm trying to picture the images that you saw. Was there like certain clips that you remember um, like hitting you the most? Mm -hmm. Definitely the residential school system. And the I think the fact that the last one closed in 1996, like after mm -hmm. my brothers were born, that was like, wow, that's like, that's our generation and it's like thinking about um people's like grandparents who've survived and like people's parents who've survived and just making those connections I guess like visualizing the families affected the images of of people like being interviewed in nature I think of those as well I remember like kind of taking a trip along with them um as they they travel to different communities and talk to people I want to hear about your time in Australia because you spent some time studying abroad there and you also got to do an internship in Kananara related to Indigenous culture and languages. Yeah, like I would say that that um, conference planted a seed. I kind of landed on Australia because I wanted to keep my options open in terms of like going to med school possibly. Um, 
so I wanted to still meet those prerequisites. Um, I chose like an English university and it happened to be that Australia was like far away. Um, really interesting. I knew like almost nothing about it. Yeah, the University of Melbourne just seemed like a cool school to go to, had interesting courses and and Melbourne seemed like a nice city. So it was quite an adventure. Like my first time living in a different country as an adult and having to like adjust, set all that up all the minutia of like bank account, phone, uh, yeah, booking flights, uh, organizing travel or like just winging it a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, while I was there, like I took um, a class, uh, I think it was introduction to Aboriginal languages. Aboriginal is like the term for like the first peoples of Australia. That course like really got me interested in doing applied linguistics work. For me, that meant doing an internship um, in Northern Australia. And there was a language and culture center, the Miramadawang Wulapgaring Language and Culture Center in Kananara, Australia. So I was able to get set up with an internship there. And I, um, I traveled up there and stayed there for a few months um, while taking a semester off from school. How did your experiences in Australia kind of shape what you did when you came back? And maybe this is a good chance to talk about your work in Ganawage and the Dalai Lama Fellowship. Um, but I know you were involved in a lot when you came back to McGill. Yeah, <laughs> like, like I had um, senioritis in the sense of like FOMO, like really hard <laughs> mm. fear of missing out. And um, I ended up taking an extra semester um, just to round out everything I wanted to to do which was like too much looking back um <laughs> but something I had to learn <laughs> I don't know I thought I, I it was bad to give up but really like looking back there were like certain things that happened like I was like hit by a drunk driver while on my bike and broke my foot yeah. and that could have been the trigger to like just drop more things and just focus inward and on healing but I think um staying busy like really helped me cope Mm. as well and like kind of put it off so yeah I'm trying to like stay compassionate with my younger self (laughs) yeah I Um, remember that was a tough winter and we were roommates looking back I don't know how good a roommate I was to be honest but I remember when I got that call and you were like hey I'm at this in this street corner I just got hit by a car and I was like holy shit like let me come over there right now and it was crazy and and afterwards, you still have to deal with all the drama of like insurance and like not mm-hmm. getting paid out. But it was crazy. Like you were riding your bike, wearing your helmet, thank God. And well, maybe you tell a story because I, I remember what you <laughs> told me, but you you went through it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was riding my bike like almost home where we lived in Myland. And there's this like one place where there are several lanes that sort of merge and there's no bike path. So it was right around there where like all of a sudden I find myself on the ground and like this car drives over my foot and my bike. Um, and luckily, like I, I fell to the side, you know, it turns out like a drunk driver hit me while I was riding my bike and I was in front of her. Yeah, I was just like on the side of the road, like basically waiting for the ambulance, like staying still just in case I had like a, a neck or a spinal injury. Um, really glad that I was wearing my helmet because I fell like right on my head. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I think um, some good Samaritans like stopped and like stayed around me. A couple like witnesses stuck around who saw saw it happen because I didn't see anything. 
and called you and called my parents and yeah I was I was really lucky because like it was a pretty small fracture on my foot and it's I mean it's been a few years been like five years and it's uh, mostly healed but like I still get a little pain sometimes but um yeah just it, it was tough to like on top of everything else I guess deal with all the paperwork you have to fill in like trying to get better um mm. definitely gives me a lot of like empathy for people who have to go through that or like have a you know a more serious experience like it's it's a lot mm-hmm. and yeah you have to like be your own advocate and stuff so did you ever get that case resolved with the driver <sighs> I I had some interactions with the prosecutor like a few years later mm. um but I'm not sure what happened in the end actually because mm. it changed hands like a lot of times uh. and I kind of like lost touch with the person so I don't know <laughs> I hope they learned the lesson or got their license revoked or something, or at least suspended. Me too. Yeah. I don't know really anything about them. So Damn. I'm glad you're okay now and, and yeah, recovered. You, you're a great roommate, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You don't have to say that. <laughs> no, I think we were both like trying our best. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. 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 You were still doing a lot, um, but I get that feeling of both the FOMO because it's your last year or last time in this community and so you want to soak it up as much as possible but also when you're that age and so excited about what you're doing it's like you don't want to stop like these are the things that fulfill you yeah for sure yeah and I, I I did and still do get a lot of fulfillment out of that what I would tell my younger self is like just make sure I can commit and like be a bit more responsible like mm-hmm. following through because I did like drop a few balls and mm-hmm. I, I kept a, like most of them up in the air but I dropped a few so it happens yeah. as um, I've gotten old, older I've learned to say no to things from the start yeah because I I have a better idea of projecting how much work things will take yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like that, that that was a huge factor and it's still something I'm like learning because I when I do like evaluation projects at work or whatever like yeah it just takes takes a minute <laughs> to figure out the scope it's always different yeah. yeah definitely we've had a few conversations about this too as Canadians living in the U.S. but I wanted to hear you know you moved to Atlanta to work for the CDC before we dig into the work stuff curious to hear what were like the things that stuck out to you as a Canadian that you were like oh well this is like very American and very different from what I know growing up. I think um, how loud people were sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> like, or in general, very vocal, like, just louder. than <laughs> <laughs> Like, literally. Yeah. Yeah. The other big thing, which is partly, like, from being in the South, just how much, uh, like, people would greet each other and acknowledge each other on the street. If you were driving a car, which is most people's situation, totally different story. And, like, pretend no one else exists in the whole world. <laughs> but I would walk a lot and ride my bike and, like, encounter a lot of people and just, like, say hello or just make eye contact and nod. Which I, I would have reverse culture shock whenever I'd come back to Canada. Because I would, like, try to make eye contact with people and they <laughs> would just ignore me. <laughs> interesting that must be a Montreal thing because if you go to Vancouver everyone's so like 
you wave at all the strangers and say hello. <laughs> like every time I went on a jog, I'd like make, make five new friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, in New York city, like no one would talk to me like, yeah, <laughs> on my merry way. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think uh, like it might be related to what you mentioned about America being so big. Like there's such a wide spectrum of views, like opinions, everything. It was like, it was the center of the universe a lot of the time. So I would often just like pipe up and be like, oh, well, this happened in Canada or like there's this work being done in Canada. <laughs> Unless there was like a, an, you know, a disease outbreak in another country, like that would definitely be talked about. There was a bit of an erasure element too. It's like if I wasn't bringing my experience, um, a lot of people I would like would assume that I was American or whatever. Did you find yourself having to speak up more about that, whether it's like your own identity or just like reminding people that there's other perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. I think I I felt that the most when dealing with like immigration issues, which Mm. was um, like a motivation to move back to Canada because that was just very stressful to deal with and like always uncertain. And yeah, a bit of a feeling of like, like not being able to settle down and not having access to the same stuff that like Americans did. And on the positive side, though, like, it was really awesome to be in a new place, like, learn from my peers and be around so many, like, open and honest, um, like, interesting and, and yeah, a diverse group of people. And uh, the, the program that I did at the CDC was the, an evaluation fellowship. And then I stayed on to work on um, supporting the Ebola response in, uh, in Eastern DRC the 2018 Ebola response. Yeah, that was like just an awesome experience. And um, the resources available for public health work in the States, I think are are pretty amazing. Yeah, like the action orientation and the the hard work that that goes into like projects. Yeah, I was really impressed with that and was like honored to be a part of that work. That's so cool. You were one of the first people I thought of interviewing when I started this podcast, especially because we're in a pandemic and I'm like, we need to have a public health perspective. And, (laughs) and you literally just were working on the Ebola response. So can you talk a little bit about what evaluation means, like what your work looks like day to day, and then how you got involved in the Ebola response work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So evaluation can look like a lot of different different things it's basically like analysis to answer key questions about a a program or project or an activity like those questions that we're trying to answer questions about are we doing what we plan to do in this activity is it working to have the impact that we think it it, or that we want it to have and like what's next or how could we improve to like make a bigger impact i guess a, a method that applies to a lot of different fields like there's a lot of work in education, definitely in public health, um, health, but now there's like evaluations of environmental initiatives, can evaluate like policies, social work or social um, programs. Um, also, a lot of the methods are like transferable into business. And so got it. So it's like a reflection exercise almost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, yeah, that's how I like to practice it anyway. <laughs> mm. But a lot of people do like t- get taken aback, I guess, by the word evaluation. Like, especially when governments are mandating evaluations, or if you think about like getting evaluated in school, it yeah can be like a loaded term that, yeah, isn't like welcoming or 
a happy, fun experience. <laughs> right. What I what I believe it is like the happier, um, yeah, more like constructive experience. So in your case, what does that evaluation work look like? And like, does it tie into any funding results or anything like that? Like, what's the what's the like end thing that you deliver and how does it impact a an initiative? Yeah, it depends. Um, a key part of the evaluation is like engaging with stakeholders and planning like so that the results will get used because oftentimes in history, like we'll do these evaluation or reflection projects and you know, it'll just sit on a shelf. And sometimes like we have to tick a box for the funders or whoever, but if we want it to truly be like a, an improvement exercise or like that reflective exercise, it, it should get used. Evaluations that I've worked on have definitely been more like qualitative in nature. So it involves like talking to people, trying to to get as a complete a picture as possible and then present that in a way that's like where we can take key recommendations or look at the trends. Mm. So in the case of Ebola, you were working on the response first in Atlanta, right? So you weren't on the ground yet. What kinds of work were you doing when you were, you know, at, at headquarters? The Ebola evaluation work was like slightly different. It was more of a, a monitoring project. So like checking in at regular intervals, what was the feedback? It was from a very specific uh, piece of the response because the response is like a huge structure. with a lot of different actors. There's like um, people who are who are doing uh, epidemiology, so like contact tracing and investigation, there are vaccination teams, um, treatment teams, and then the teams that, that we were working with were the part of the communications and community engagement piece, which is a lot of like talking to people, informing them, answering their questions, and then this feedback piece, um, which is what we were working on, was also listening to them, um, recording what they were saying, like if they had heard a rumor or like if they had a certain belief about Ebola that would get recorded to to get a snapshot of kind of what is the conversation right now in this particular area um, among these people. We call it community feedback and it was collected by Red Cross volunteers um, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo Red Cross. Yeah, there were like hundreds of volunteers mobilized around the region to spread these messages like among their communities because there are a lot of like key behaviors that people can do early on. Like if somebody is sick with Ebola or potentially sick, that can really save lives. They also spread messages to like destigmatize Ebola, like reduce fear. At first, um, I worked with the team uh, to start like analyzing this feedback, um, kind of see what was possible. And then it, it grew. And um, eventually I traveled to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, working mostly out of Goma to do like capacity building projects because it's a, a country and a region that experiences like Ebola outbreaks pretty regularly. Like there have been uh, two more in that country since the one that I worked on to support like uh, volunteers or staff in country to have the like analytic skills like for future projects and continue uh, analyzing feedback without, uh, I guess, like having to wait for the CDC or it's like a more efficient and sustainable system. And also um, we recognize that uh, people with the knowledge of the local context, so like the Red Cross volunteers and, and staff, they are also able to like interpret the what the feedback is saying a lot more effectively. 
Okay. A couple questions. One, can you remind me some of the facts about Ebola? What are the symptoms and how does it spread? Yeah. Um, it's a virus, um, and it's a hemorrhagic fever. The symptoms like can vary fever, vomiting, diarrhea. A lot of people think bleeding is a main symptom, but it's actually like not, it, it wasn't that common. Um, from what we, we saw, yeah, stuff like headache, sore throat, cough, um, joint and muscle pain. So sounds a lot like COVID, right? Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like everything. Yeah. <laughs> the thing with Ebola is um, it's in the environment. Like we think that it's a uh, reservoir. So like where it kind of like lives and is transmitted in bats when people interact with the bats or like other animals that might interact with bats. We think that's how it, it outbreaks start in people. So and similar to COVID in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, um, the theory of like the pangolin. Yeah. Mm. Um, which, yeah, to my knowledge, like we haven't, um, confirmed anything, but there's, mm. yeah. But it's not um, as infectious as COVID. I'm not sure. Actually, I haven't seen like comparisons, but the thing is it, it's very deadly without treatment. It can be over 50% like chance that a person will die. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It's a lot better with treatment, but like it's high and it, it spreads, um, through bodily fluids especially when the person is close to death or, or has died. Mm -hmm. So rituals and like caregiving acts are like a main time when it can spread or within um, the healthcare system. Everything about health is pretty personal, but especially with Ebola, like it, it's um, transmitted through, through acts of love, like caregiving, like burials, things like that. So yeah, that's um, like a huge uh, cultural element in the Ebola response. And part of uh, the value of like the feedback was that it could reflect some of the concerns or like, like experiences people had um, mm. and it would help the response, like understand people actually living the outbreak and not just working in it. So how, like with a proper Ebola response, like how would you take care of a body of someone who just died? Safe and dignified burials were developed um, in the West African outbreak in 2014. And that like combines what you need to do to protect like everyone there. Um, it also allows to take care of like the spiritual, mental and emotional health. And this is like borrowing the medicine wheel concept, um, which is a, a way of understanding health used by a lot of indigenous communities in Canada and uh, in other places as well. So it, it allows to take care of like other aspects of health and not just that physical element of like stopping the spread of this virus. If we ignore like those cultural, spiritual, emotional elements, then there's a, a big risk that um, people will like hide the possibility that this was Ebola or yeah. And it, it leads to like more spread later on. Yeah. It reminds me of COVID as well in that like there's so much emphasis and for good reason, um, you know, putting in these safe measures that, I think it's a little better now in hospitals, but in the early days, how, you know, patients who were dying from COVID weren't, weren't allowed to see anyone like family, friends, like no one could visit just a few weeks ago. We, we had a doctor on this podcast, John Ree, who wrote some articles about this when he was working in hospice care and had patients who were dying of other reasons, but they couldn't have family members come in because of COVID, which is obviously really sad. I like that you use the word dignified. Like it is not a dignified way to go. Yeah, it's horrible. And 
also like um, my grandma passed away last month and I was really lucky that I, I got to um, see her and say goodbye, but we hadn't seen her in a year before that because of COVID. So I think we're going to be feeling these effects for like a while, just grieving the time we've lost, the just that connection. Zoom doesn't, uh, I mean, <laughs> not to call it Zoom in particular, <laughs> it's just not the same, like not to be in person. Yeah, I can't hug you yeah. through Zoom. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry yeah. to hear about your grandma. Thanks. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, I'm glad you guys got to see her. Yeah, me too. Yeah, really, really grateful for that. Mm. Okay, so I do want to hear too about just your experience of being in the DRC. What was that like? Like, had you been to Africa before then? No. Okay, <laughs> so that was your first experience on the continent. What yeah. surprised you? I think maybe like just the busyness of the streets. Like, it was like just very fascinating. I would people watch like so much. <laughs> I, I, I tried to prepare myself like as much as possible, really, by reading stuff like obviously all the feedback gave me an idea of uh, kind of like what people's experiences were, even though it was um, pretty short sentences and translated a couple times. And yeah. <laughs> and I tried to uh, like talk to as many people who had been before. I was lucky I had a, a few colleagues who had gone on deployments before me. So they answered all my questions. And part of what was really surprising was like, just to actually see it and, and see the city and how it was set up and all the people, um, everyone like hustles all the time there's like stores set up on the side of the street like just very different from any city I had been to before what was really cool and surprising at the Red Cross was how much singing um, the volunteers did they would just have regular like songs they would sing together anthems or like songs they would sing while exercising or dancing um, songs to like welcome leaders and appreciate them um, that was really lovely <laughs> And I, I learned a couple of them. Also how quickly and often everything changes too. Like just how many, you know, different teammates I had, how many, um, you know, how quickly like priorities could change. And a bit, it was a bit of a shock to come back suddenly due to COVID, like, cause we were repatriated right at the, the start of the pandemic lockdown. So once I kind of came out of that, just like the shock of, okay, now nothing's going to change for a while <laughs> mm. or or not, not knowing that, I guess like the uncertainty was maybe still there, but um, going from everything happening at once to almost nothing. It sounds like your time there and, and like I get this picture of it being very fluid, like as a society in a place, like things are moving, people are hustling, but also like the singing stuff, like that's so cool. Like you would never see that at a Red Cross in Canada or the US. <laughs> it's like, like you would go to a karaoke bar or sing at home. It's so much more like walled experiences, like certain activities happen in certain places, Yeah, but it sounds like a lot more open over there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, and uh, this is another like awesome piece of it was um, on Sunday mornings around 5 a.m., like we would start at six, um, there was a kind of community like fun run or exercise every Sunday. Wow. It, it was like the whole town came out and was just working out. Like there were almost no motos or no um, minibuses driving around. Yeah, we would try to run um, like a circuit or go for a walk, but there'd be people doing like martial arts. Um, doing you know sit-ups and push-ups um rollerblading cycling um doing all kinds of sports and it would finish up around like seven or eight 
and we would all go back and like have breakfast and stuff or go back to sleep wow (laughs) yeah it was really cool that is the most wholesome thing ever (laughs) (laughs) like a whole town exercising together on a Sunday at 5 (laughs) a.m yeah it's amazing wow did would they like go to church after um probably a lot of people would yeah I think that that was behind a lot of the timing and then yeah (laughs) Mm, very cute I don't remember the last time I woke up at five I don't think I will for a long time (laughs) (laughs) but maybe if I had like a fun run yeah I I I did sleep through like a few (laughs) (laughs) how long were you there for so I was there with two breaks in between um was there on and off from August of 2019 until March of 2020 five months total with like you take out the breaks and then you moved back to Montreal yeah okay when I first started my my fellowship there weren't really like any outbreaks going on so it was like unexpected but also something I always wanted to get involved in because I remember learning about the 2014 Ebola outbreak and like just being so so fascinated you know wanting to support somehow because it was such a like tragedy in a lot of ways like I'm just really grateful to to have been able to work on the response. But yeah, I after living in the States for like maybe a year and a half, I, there are a lot of personal factors that showed me that I wanted to move back to Canada more long term. Part of it was like the context of, you know, not being a citizen and that um, underlying kind of like uncertainty or insecurity. And uh, there weren't any like good solutions. Also, just missing um, my communities here and being a bit too far from family, like to be able to travel in an emergency, like wanting to spend more time with family. My, uh, my brother had a few kids, so <laughs> wanting to, to be around them. Which, the like, cutest babies ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Shout out to Mason, Ruby and Raylan. <laughs> oh my God. Um, for listeners, we have like a girl group text chat and Viv sends us like weekly baby videos and <laughs> It's literally like my weekly dose of sunshine. <laughs> Baby and Spo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're awesome. But yeah, so I, I wanted to move back to Canada. Also, like, I, I realized that it was kind of helpful to think of myself as an observer in the US. It was less, like, less frustrating. I think I heard somebody who's a documentarian, like, refer to himself as an observer and just was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I wish I thought of this earlier (laughs) but Mm. because it like there's so many restrictions on what you can actually get involved in politically plus like the arbitrariness of if I'm ever arrested or something like my visa can get snatched away Mm. um that kind of thing and then I lose my job if I lose my visa yeah that type of like underlying insecurity plus there's all this stuff going on in the states and it's the center of the universe when you're there but um there's other stuff going on in Canada like other injustices like I remember like the Colton Bougie murder yeah and and where like George Stanley was standing trial for that I remember that happening and I just felt like like I want to be there and witness that and like participate be a citizen yeah yeah I mean you want to be a whole person but it's cool because it sounds like you are able to apply a lot of what you learned through working on Ebola and working at the CDC to your work now where now you're supporting the COVID response in Montreal. And maybe this is a good time to, you know, check in on that post-it note about the Dalai Lama <laughs> Fellowship. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So how did I learn about Dalai Lama Fellowship? 
I think it was like something that always got advertised through McGill and it was money to do a project plus a curriculum that would bring like different people together, like mostly younger people from around the world who had um, an idea for a social change project or like project to benefit a community. We would learn like compassion, self-mastery and mindfulness. Yeah, I wanted to just give it a shot. But I didn't like have a project in mind, but I was learning about Indigenous health and just thought this would be great to put towards like disparities or like towards improving health equity and um, some kind of uh, reconciliation. I had experience in, you know, in studying sciences and like uh, sexual health, especially like I, I was volunteering as a facilitator doing sexual health, sexual health workshops. So I applied and I was accepted to the fellowship. In my proposal, it was a train the trainers model, emphasizing that it was like by and for youth affected by a certain like health equity issue. Then once I got accepted and did like, like found out more about what the project was about, I reached out to a couple of organizations um, to try and see like if, if we could make a partnership. And um, I reached out to the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. And through that um, was connected with somebody in, in Ganawage who ended up facilitating our, our project and I supported her. And the project was called uh, Our Families Grow Together. And it was a series of, of workshops um, for attachment parenting, sexual health, reproductive health. Uh, this was for like young caregivers in, uh, in Ganawage. Yeah, I learned just so much from that experience, like about, uh, you know, solidarity and allyship and like working together kind of cross-culturally it was just a lot of fun I would do a lot of like finance work uh cooking and like preparing growing food um a lot of logistics stuff so we did that for about a year the Dalai Lama fellowship like um outside of the project was really important in ways that are like still revealing themselves now I think like a lot of the skills and discussions I had and the people I met I still come back to that and I, I try to like ground myself in those those memories sometimes and like reconnect with the community yeah it taught me like a lot of skills like uh, mindfulness and self-mastery that are helpful during the pandemic and during like challenges I could face at work now or like just in life yeah I feel like I could use a program like that right now oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> just like um, breathing exercises for example <laughs> yeah and self-compassion oh, that kind of thing I miss going to in-person yoga classes that were slightly spiritual where you'd like have a part of it that was meditation practice. Yeah. Just like being in the present and both like accepting whatever crap is going on in the present and like being grateful for the good things we have. But a lot of the pandemic for me has been like waiting for stuff. I feel like sometimes I'm going to be waiting forever. So Mm -hmm. like just remembering to be in the moment and accepting circumstances we have yeah Yeah. that's a good reminder do you want to share a bit on the work that you're doing now yeah um so I I work in Ganawage again um but uh this time I'm I'm working um full-time for which is uh the one health and social service agency in Ganawage and you said earlier uh supporting the COVID response in Montreal but it's really some parts of my job are supporting the COVID response in Ganawage, so on the territory. Ganawage is a Ganiakahaga territory just south of Montreal. Yeah, I guess I should have said this at the beginning, but <laughs> all that I've shared is my own um, opinions and experiences and, and views, and I'm not representing uh, any of the organizations that I 
have worked for or who I work for now. Um, <laughs> I have one last question for you. Yeah, sure. Is, um, you give so much of yourself to your work and, and the communities that you serve and the people that you work with. How have you stayed whole through it all? And what are some of the lessons that you've learned about how you can take care of yourself while, um, you know, working in public health and caring for others? Yeah, I don't know if I, if I have stayed whole. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'm doing better now, but I feel like I've, I've built my resilience back um, quite a bit, but finding a balance between like burying my head in the sand and waiting till I'm ready to deal with stuff (laughs) and then yeah just like accepting my feelings when I am dealing with stuff trying to stay compassionate with myself let myself feel my feelings like the grief the uncertainty telling myself it's okay to slow down and trying not to stay like too much in the past because I I realized I was doing that a lot like ruminating or thinking about past stuff that I'm not even sure if I'm remembering it correctly and just focusing on the yeah, the connections that I have and yeah, just staying in the present and a little bit in the future, like the hopeful future and talking about just how this is affecting all of us. That, that helped me like a lot, just telling people like, yeah, I'm feeling down, feeling a bit depressed, like that kind of thing. Um, that helped a lot. Still something I'm working on self-care. Honestly, something I've like been working on for several years and I have a lot of tools, but using them is another story. But I think don't that, let them rest in your tool belt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One realization I've had is like it's it's hard to get back into it, into routines and stuff when I um do face a setback or like have a change in my environment. So I think paying attention to those like key moments and trying to really focus on self-care in those like transition times and have like just having something consistent that I do. What is that for you? Uh right now I would say it's like like talking to friends and and family for a little bit it was like running um while I was deployed but then I like I got injured so that was an example of a setback uh tea really helps (laughs) yeah I remember didn't you have like a little red teapot yeah (laughs) (laughs) do you still have that it's uh, stuck in Atlanta right now yeah. <laughs> I've like fixed the lid so many times on that well this has been a great conversation thank you so much Jean <laughs> all right thank you so much for listening and watching today's episode let me know what you thought in the comments below I'm excited to see you guys again and talk to you next week and share my own story be sure to subscribe wherever you're tuning in and I will talk to you then Bye.